Hi friends, welcome to the Psyche Mental Wellbeing Podcast with me, your host, Hannah. On the show, I'm joined each episode by an amazing guest to have an honest conversation, share our real life experiences and tackle stigma and misconceptions around mental health along the way. We believe that everyone would benefit from focusing a little more on their mental well-being, and we're here to support you to do just that. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome back. How are you doing this Monday morning? And today we are getting a little bit philosophical and psychological uh, one of the things that I mention often is about being a massive, massive geek. And uh, in today's episode, really kind of leaning into that and diving into psychological research and how exciting that can be. And and I guess in thinking about applied psychology, getting a bit into philosophical areas of, of how we can know stuff and beliefs and, and all of that. Um, but before we dive in, just to backtrack uh, a little um, and wanting to say thank you again to Jen who joined us on Wednesday last week and I got a a lovely message from Jen she sent me a voice message uh, on Instagram so thanks to Jen and uh, as with her on on her show she really enjoys the power of narratives and, and bringing different people's stories to her listeners and that is the same as me here on this show And we like to have all kinds of different stories and and different voices, people who have had a huge amount of life experience or professional experience or people who are just starting out on that journey and all different places, because I think there can be a lot that we can learn from other people's perspectives and their experiences and, and the kind of sense that they make of all of that. Because I really believe that we all have something unique and important to say and and to share and that yeah there can be can be so much value in all kinds of stories so today I'm joined by Michael and Michael has recently finished his undergrad psychology degree in the US and part of that he's got involved in a lot of really really interesting psychological research and as I said we're kind of geeking out on all of that and we really get into moral psychology, which is an area that he's really interested in. And um, I feel like I talk a lot in um, in this episode and kind of sharing my views and, and a bit more, I guess, about my philosophical view on, on the world. And um, as you may know, psychology is a subject that's really important to me. I have a master's in psychology and I'm kind of in that area. I've taught psychology. I, I find it fascinating. Um But I actually also studied philosophy when I was at college and a little bit at university. So that's also a subject that I really enjoy and really kind of thinking about things that we hold to be true. And and, uh, that's something we really get into today with beliefs. So it feels like it's a bit more of a, a theoretical discussion, if that makes sense. So we are talking about applied concepts and I think there are some really great messages and perspectives that, that Michael has but just I guess a heads up that it is a little bit more abstract and more theoretical today so I hope you enjoy it I definitely loved having this conversation and kind of mixing it up a little bit um, so I hope you enjoy it I hope it maybe helps you to to look at your beliefs or how you see the world and I think examining our own I beliefs is really valuable so I hope you enjoy it and I will speak to you again afterwards. 
Hi everyone and I'm really excited to welcome Michael to the podcast. So Michael, welcome and if you could introduce yourself to us and tell us a little bit about you. Great, thank you for having me. Um, well, my name is Michael Apostle. I recently completed my undergraduate degree in psychology in the United States at a, uh, at a smaller school in California. Um, I decided to study psychology because I initially wanted to become a therapist, but sort of as I was studying psychology and preparing to apply to graduate school, I discovered that I really enjoyed the research. So that's sort of been my focus now. And I've done research as an undergraduate in, in a bunch of different areas. And now my goal is just to work for a few years and apply to graduate programs in social or cognitive psychology. Awesome. And yeah, I love psychology. I, for some reason, um, I did it at college. So that's your kind of like, I don't know, senior years of high school. Um, and then for my undergrad, I did kind of philosophy and politics. So I didn't do psychology, but then have come back to it <laughs> as a graduate. Um, so uh, yeah, I love psychology. So I'm really happy to sort of geek out on psychology for a bit. Um, a good place to start maybe is why psychology. So you said about wanting to be a therapist initially, but what kind of attracted you to psychology as a subject? I think just the fact that you could really form these deep connections with different people on a day-to-day -day basis. That's what initially drew me to psychology. But then once I started learning about it, and once I started taking all these classes, I thought the research was fascinating. I mean, I loved my research methodology and my statistics courses. I thought it was incredible how you could apply these techniques and, and make a statement about something in the real world. I, I just think it's incredible. Yeah, I, I love research, but I, I actually, um, I, I, yeah, I quite like statistics and that being able to kind of um, I guess psychology is quite fun because you can do that kind of general rules of this is what human, you know, humanity is like as a species, but also the real individual differences. And I think for me personally, and the areas that I'm interested in psychology, I'm really drawn to the more individual methods and really kind of understanding how people make meaning for themselves, how they make meaning of their lives. They're the kind of ones that I'm most drawn to now. So, yeah. So, Tell us about, you said you did, um, you've uh, done a few different areas of research for your undergrad. So let's, uh, let's talk about some of your research and geek out massively. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, stop me if, I, <laughs> if I'm talking for too long about it, because I could talk about research forever. But uh, yeah, so like I said, I wanted to become a therapist. And as I was learning about how to do that, I learned that one of the things that you need to do is get some research experience, you know, as you're doing your undergraduate degree or afterwards. So I started emailing different professors in the psychology department. And eventually I started doing research with a social psychologist who studied aggressive behavior, um, sports, and sort of zero-sum competitions, a little bit of politics as well. And with the social psychologist, we, or the, the project that I was involved in was about fighting in professional hockey. So we were asking questions like, if a fight occurs at a different point in the game, how does this influence the momentum? How does this fight influence uh, the final score? How do different qualities of this fight, like the number of punches that were thrown, the number of punches that collided, uh, the duration of the fight, how do these factors influence the game outcome? And that was very interesting. So I did that, I, I worked on that project for about three years and we're finally getting the, the manuscript submitted to some journals. It's been a, it's been a long journey, but lots of fun. 
I wonder, this, this is kind of an aside, a hockey question, because I've only seen hockey once um, and it's not, that we have got ice hockey in the UK, but it's not kind of massive. And I don't know if you're talking about ice hockey or just kind of hockey hockey. Um, but in the ice hockey game, there was, there was like two different types of fighting. There was one where it seemed fine um, and like the helmet stayed on and it was fine. And then suddenly there was like a line that we were trying to figure out what it was that then when it went past it, then it was like, no, that's a penalty now. And because watching it when you've never watched it before, you're like, well, what is the difference between these two types of fights that one is fine and one is suddenly like, well, no, you've gone too far now. I don't know if you know the answer to that, but it was something that I was curious about. Yeah, so so uh, the research wasn't was in ice hockey. Um, and I've actually, despite doing research on this topic for three years, I've never been to a professional hockey match. So I've never seen this in person. I, I have reviewed several hundred video clips of these fights, but the way that we sort of operationalized fighting in the study was they had to drop their gloves and, and play had to stop and the referees were sort of around to, to make sure nothing too bad happens. And yeah, I mean, like you said, I was shocked when I watched these fights, helmets were coming off, they were being thrown into the glass on the sides. It's... But there'd be some where it was, you know, pretty much a fight, like, you know, throwing punches, but it'd be fine. And then maybe, yeah, maybe it's the helmet off, gloves off, and like, right now you've gone too far. But it was, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if there are other sports that are like that, that have that level of fighting within them before it is, oh, well, now it's, now it's too far. It's like there's some that's just like acceptable. That's an acceptable level of aggression. Were there, were there any interesting findings that, that came up from that research? Yeah, so our research contradicted a lot of what the fans and players and coaches had been saying. So the hockey fans and, and the players and the coaches they believe in this thing called the spark hypothesis, which isn't an official hypothesis in psychology. It's just something that we refer to in our own research. And this is the idea that fighting will shift the momentum in the game and eventually propel the team of the fight's winner to victory. And in short, we didn't find any evidence of that. And we did a bunch of different analyses. So whether you were fighting in the first few minutes or the final minutes or in the middle of the game, whether it was a long fight or a short fight, um, whether there were dozens of punches thrown or just one big punch, there was no real difference in in the final game outcome. Was there a negative impact or just no no real impact? There seemed to be no relationship. Uh, yeah. So and and towards the end of of the paper, we sort of framed it uh, as this is evidence to maybe do away with fighting in professional hockey because. Obviously, it's, it's detrimental uh, physically to the players, and there seems to be no real benefit to the game. I mean, there, there, there may be some, but uh, mm. nothing confirmed by our research. Yeah, I guess it's maybe, you know, for an entertainment perspective for the fans. But yeah, I guess for, for coaches and, and for the team, if there was a psychological benefit of, well, actually, it's going to make us more likely to win because we're fired up, then, then maybe there's that kind of rationale for keeping it. But if it's like, well, there's no benefit, you're getting injured, you're getting penalties. <laughs> so there's, there's actually no reason to do it. Then, um, yeah, the reason is purely entertainment. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. One of, one of the ideas is that maybe the fighting is used to protect some of the star players. So maybe if, if the opposite team is going after some of the top guys, then you'll send in uh, what's called the enforcer, which is players who have a lot of fights. And, and as we were doing research, we saw that players had, you know, 20, 30, 40 fights throughout their careers, which is, which is a lot. 
Yeah. And I, I don't know if this is something that you covered in, in your research, but I wonder if there's, if, if it sounds like there's uh, a role that's specifically maybe there to protect the sort of star players, whether those individuals are more aggressive generally, do they have more fights outside of hockey generally, or is it really just, this is your role, basically play some hockey, but most, mostly fight? Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. We didn't, we didn't cover that, but that'd definitely be an interesting future research topic, seeing how, um, I mean, you could also think of it like, are professional fighters, like are professional boxers aggressive outside of, of the ring or the octagon? Yeah, I'm, I'm does- not sure. Yeah, it's like, does it attract a certain type of person who maybe is mm-hmm. more aggressive or does it make people more aggressive? Are they able to separate, like, this is my in-ring persona or whatever and that's where it's okay to fight, but outside it's not. Whether the the boundaries are blurred at all, I think, well, yeah, it would be, there you go, new research idea for you. <laughs> for you. Fantastic. And so what did you go on to after that? Because I'm, I'm really interested uh, in, in the next one that, that you moved into. Well, all of them, but especially this next one. Sure, yeah. So the social social psychologist was married to, I guess you could call her a clinical neuropsychologist uh, at another university in the same city. And at her lab, she was studying autism. And I became a research assistant at this lab. So we were doing a bunch of diagnostic examinations like the ADOS or the Mullen. Um, we were administering these things to toddlers with autism. And at the same time, we were doing MRI scans. So we were bringing them to the MRI machines and trying to get them to fall asleep late at night, maybe 11, 11 at night, 12, 12. Um, and we would scan their brains. And yeah, this, this was a huge lab. And it was, it was, it had quite a bit of culture shock compared to the last one. So with, with the social psychologist, I was just working one-on-one with this professor but in the lab where we were studying autism, there were maybe 50 students and professors and researchers, and we had community outreach people and a bunch of administrators. And yeah. I think that's the thing with psychology that obviously it's, it's a, a broad topic because everything that's kind of related to humans sort of fits under that, which is a lot of stuff. But social to the kind of neuropsychology are kind of very different methods and, and approaches and, and theories as well. And there's a there's something that I've heard said before with with autism. Uh, my background um, as a, a teacher, I most of my teaching career has been teaching young people on the autistic spectrum. So I'm very interested in autism. And um, I can't remember who said this, but they're saying that autism is neurodevelopmental. So it's in in the brain, but you wouldn't diagnose a heart attack without looking at the heart. So to diagnose autism without looking at the brain didn't make sense but obviously brain scans quite expensive (laughs) Um, right right yeah and that was sort of the goal of this research just to I I mean I remember attending a talk I'm not sure if there's new research to suggest otherwise but at at this talk uh, the presenter was saying that you could look at a brain of someone with autism and a brain of someone who doesn't have autism and you can't really tell the difference so I think that was the goal of this research just to uh, get the numbers for their diagnostic examinations and understanding life at home and then comparing that to the, mm. to the brain scans. But I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I guess well, actually this was, um, they were looking at uh, brainwave patterns in uh, some research, I think at Oxford, I believe. But it was very interesting when I watched it. But yeah, I think with autism, I think there's still a lot of research going on about you know, the brains and, and is the brain different in someone who's autistic and not. And, and it's something that we don't have a definitive, this is the 
cause, if you like, or this is the difference in an autistic brain and a neurotypical brain. So it's, yeah, it's a kind of fascinating research because it's, and because it's a spectrum. So being a spectrum, you can kind of be, you know, anywhere Mm -hmm. on it. So there's not a definite, this is autism and this is not, it's a kind of very subjective. So is that something that was interesting in the fMRIs? Because if you're looking at people who are going through that ADOS, and I can't remember what the ADOS stands for, but I don't know if you know off the top of your head, just for acronyms for people. Sure, I believe it's the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. So it's yes. just a play-based diagnostic exam. Yeah. There's another saying that I really like, which is that when you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism because it's so varied and i guess that makes the brain scanning really interesting and possibly difficult to find any sort of conclusive evidence because two people on the spectrum could present very differently they could their brains could be very different and yet they would maybe meet that criteria for a diagnosis right absolutely yeah sorry that wasn't really a question it's just me just like geeking out on autism a bit but it's um an area I find I find really really fascinating and so how did you find that working with um fMRI machine so uh, for anyone who's wondering what that means a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine um can you tell us a little bit about that and about that type of research sure I'm, I'm not too familiar with with MRIs but from what I understand it it's looks at blood flow in the brain and it, and it sort of takes different slices of of the brain as a whole or different parts of the brain and, and you can compare uh, oxygen levels and sort of blood flow in, in different parts of the brain to understand what's going on. Yeah, I get the idea is that if there is more more blood flow, more oxygen, then probably there if the brain is doing something. Uh, and is active in, in whatever whatever this person is doing. So how long did you spend doing that research and were there any kind of big takeaways from it or um, ideas about your own kind of research journey that they kind of informed? So I did this research for a year. I did that from August 2018 to August 2019 um, and it was great. And I think the biggest takeaways were just learning about, well, on the one hand, just how much there is to learn outside of the classroom for people who are interested in doing research in psychology. I mean, in my psychology classes, even some of the more advanced ones, the the most we discuss MRIs is just the basic definition. Um, But I I think I learned a lot of practical lessons about working with different types of people and working with a larger lab um, in in this experience. So it was was eye-opening in lots of different ways. Yeah, I think it's great advice for anyone who is a student. And I wish I'd known this as an undergrad to sort of to try and find research opportunities to really get that hands on experience and particularly in psychology, because a lot of what you're doing, uh, as you said, in, in your lectures is the theoretical. But actually, if you work in the field of psychology, it's taking that and applying it in different contexts. And that's the sort of skill. So actually to be involved in research to be in the lab is a great opportunity so if anyone is listening that is a student whether it's a psychology or something else you know trying to make the most of these opportunities and I absolutely wish someone had told me when I went to uni that it would be a good thing to do because I didn't yeah I totally I mean I agree it's it's doing research as an undergraduate is is immensely useful yeah I can absolutely imagine um and so I'd love to spend a bit of time on your uh, kind of final bit of research that you were involved in Sure. So after, 
or I, I guess the summer I, I, I was still a research assistant at the, at the autism lab. And it was summer 2019. I started doing a research project on uh, the relationship between religious attitudes and different moral behaviors. So I decided to pursue this. I, there was an opportunity at my university to do an independent project over the summer. And at the time I had been taking a lot of philosophy classes and I was getting really into studying uh, moral philosophy. And I, you know, I love discussing the different, the different theories and the different frameworks, but as time went on, I became less and less comfortable making philosophical arguments about morality, sort of saying what people should be doing and what things are right and what things are wrong. And I became more interested, of course, because I was studying psychology in figuring out how people come to these conclusions about right or wrong. So taking more of a descriptive stance than a prescriptive stance. So in the summer project, I, I studied the relationship between religious attitudes and different pro-social behaviors. Um, so one of the things that I was looking at was charitable donations, and the other one was restaurant tipping behavior. Interesting. And, and what did you find? Was there any link with religion and, and those behaviors? We actually found no relationship between, between religious attitudes and, and charity or tipping behavior, uh, which, was, which was very interesting. I would have predicted or we predicted that people with, with stronger religious beliefs would either donate more or tip more, but we didn't find any evidence of that. Yeah, because I suppose most of the, the kind of the bigger religions have love as that kind of central tenet of their belief structure and this idea of charity and, and supporting other people. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a kind of a natural hypothesis to sort of say, or a prediction to say, yeah, we think that there'll, there'll be bigger tips. But interesting that there was, there was no, <laughs> no difference. But I think moral psychology is, is interesting because in particular, I think at the moment, generally around morality, because there is so much happening in the world. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, I think if we think just about COVID, and I know in, uh, in the States, there's been, from what I've seen as an outsider, debate about wearing masks and the kind of morality of that. And obviously, some people for health reasons can't wear masks, but some people who are saying, well, you can't tell me what to do. It's my right not to. Um, so I wonder, you know, your thoughts on, on that and the kind of moral, morality around those sorts of behaviours, which I suppose are maybe, maybe antisocial to not be considering other people with your actions. I don't know. But sorry, very waffly question for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, sort of the relationship between uh, morality and, and pushback because there has been quite a bit of pushback, even in, I mean, I'm in, I'm in California, which is a very, uh, which is a very liberal state. And I've seen quite a bit of pushback against the masks and the social distancing. So one of the ways that I've thought about it is there's this model that I learned about in, in a health psychology course called the identity based motivational model. And this is just the idea that, that, people act in a way, or they prefer to act in a way that fits their most important identities. And I was thinking that this model may be, and of course this is all speculation and it could be tested empirically, um, but this is just my prediction. It's that this model would predict that people with more libertarian beliefs, and of course they believe in minimal government, maximum freedom and free markets. And if people hold these beliefs, they may be uh, 
uh, less willing to adhere to social distancing or mask guidelines because to do so would be to act in a way that's consistent with their identity. And, and earlier, um, before I think we started recording, we were talking about how political beliefs are, are, are so strong and they can lead people to do a bunch of different things that other beliefs don't, we don't see with other beliefs. So that's, that's just one way. And yeah, that's just one way that I've been thinking about it in relation to the coronavirus. Yeah. And I suppose we maybe have conflicting beliefs. So we might have that belief. And I think there's also a lot of conspiracy theories and kind of um, suspicion around kind of governments and, and big business at the, at the moment as well. But so you could have that. But then if you also have a value of being considerate of other, of other people and being empathetic, then maybe you have this kind of disparity of like one is telling me you can't tell me what to do. And one is maybe saying, well, maybe for other people's health, I should. So you've maybe got an internal struggle in some people possibly um, of, of, of what to do in this, in this situation. But I think it's a really interesting thing to, to sort of observe and to see. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think right now is, it's, it's a fascinating time for people that are interested in psychology, uh, just, just seeing how people have reacted to this global pandemic in, in a bunch of different ways. It's totally unique. I'm, I'm in my early 20s, so nothing like this has happened in my lifetime. But even when I'm talking to, you know, my parents or, or people their age, I don't, I don't think anything like this is, has really happened uh, for, for, you know, a few hundred years, maybe, or a hundred years or so. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, you hear these words like unprecedented and, uh, you know, that are thrown around, but, but it is, it's a, it's a whole new situation. I think in terms of research opportunities, it's, uh, it's maybe great for that, seeing the, the, um, the sort of impact but I think yeah as you were saying about um politics and and beliefs and I think this is maybe getting into the philosophy of it and yeah I studied philosophy so I love all this of um and I remember uh, back when I was doing philosophy talking about these uh, this idea of beliefs and then knowledge and knowledge being like a justified true belief but that kind of key word there is belief because I I have my political leanings and to me they're true that's right. That's the, the way it should be. But ultimately, that's what I believe. And I personally think, and it'd be interesting to see if you agree with this, that when we have this real um, polarized, we have really polarized political ideas um, and kind of political structure. And when you're saying to someone, you're wrong, you're wrong, and, and not appreciating that that's their belief as well. And, and particularly if they believe something that maybe we as a society say isn't morally correct. I think when we can recognize it's a belief, then there is that opportunity to think about where do beliefs come from and can we change beliefs and how have we learned them and can we learn something different? Whereas if it's like knowledge, <laughs> that's very, very fixed, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think framing framing uh, morality in terms of beliefs rather than an absolute knowledge or absolute truth uh, or something like an objective truth is it's a it's an immensely powerful tool to understand others especially those that you disagree with because I think that I think that most people have the same beliefs the same core beliefs um, you know don't harm others try to try to make the lives of others better but we just disagree on how to get there. And if we can recognize that, I think, I think that's the way to go to sort of move past this, like you said, the polarization. 
Yeah. When I think if you can, like you said, find that common ground. And if you can go into those discussions, and I think politics, religion, these are classic examples of where you're, you can be on opposite sides and no one wants to back down. But if you can appreciate this is my belief, that's their belief. It's, it's different to mine maybe, but to them it's as true as my belief is to me. I think that puts you in a, a better place of being able to possibly <laughs> reach some common ground and understanding. But I think so often we go into those conversations I'm right. You're wrong. <laughs> no one's going to tell me different. This is the truth. It's not a belief. And it's the them and us thing, isn't it? Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for religion, just use religion as an example. If you can get people to recognize that someone with different religious beliefs, they feel as strongly about those beliefs as, as you feel about yours. And, you know, they were raised from, you know, from birth to believe that this thing was true. And you can understand how sort of um, inflexible your own beliefs may be. Maybe inflexible is not the, not the right word, but maybe how committed you are to your own beliefs and recognize that this feeling is, is strong in this other person. And it's, it just has to do with, with the game of chance of life, being born into or being born into a different family, being born into a different society. There's something I, I believe as the Dalai Lama said, that ultimately all religions go to the same the same point the same place and so where whatever you're born into that's kind of the one you should stick with i mean this is a such an interesting topic that we could probably spend all night talking about but i feel like it's also one that you have to tread very carefully around because as we're saying this about people being really attached to their beliefs i think people can get quite easily offended by by that idea and we've not said anything negative about any particular political stance or religious belief but just the idea that it's a belief. Right, absolutely. I mean, you, you see it in a lot of religious doctrine. It's, they say, this isn't a belief, this is the truth. This is what actually happened. This is right, this is moral. And to, to say that, this is, you know, like we were saying, maybe like, like when you were talking about the Dalai Lama's um, quote, when you even suggest that this is maybe a partial representation of the greater reality, you know, not many great people can get very upset. Uh, one one technique that I've I've yet to use this technique that extensively, but I, I heard about it on this podcast. It's this idea of street epistemology. Or have you heard of this idea okay. before? Yeah, so it, it's this really interesting idea. So like like we were talking about earlier, if you go into this conversation with someone that you know you disagree with and you start out with with you're wrong and here's why I'm right, you're not gonna get anywhere. You're both gonna leave just angry at each other. But the idea of street epistemology is, is framing the conversation in terms of questions and asking, why do you believe this? What evidence have you considered for this belief? And, and really asking them to provide the evidence. And uh, as they're giving their justifications or their explanations for whatever belief they may hold, they may begin to identify some points. And the fact that they brought it up or, or, or they thought of these things themselves makes them uh, more open to having their minds changed, even if it's in, in the slightest way. So I think street epistemology is a great tool to have these conversations rather than just going on the offensive. Yeah, absolutely. And I, there's something, I don't know if it's called the infinite regression or something or that uh, in philosophy, where you do that kind of, oh, but, but why, <laughs> but why? And it's like what kids do, why, why? And I, um, when I did philosophy A-level and we did um, 
religious philosophy. <laughs> and I, uh, my dad was Church of England, and I, so I get into these conversations with him. But why? And then eventually, just be like, oh, just be, just because, because you're constantly going, well, yeah, but why? But but why? Like, what's the what's the evidence? But why? It's um, yeah, because quite often, sometimes we, um will have a belief but we maybe don't examine it because that's just how we've been brought up or it's just is it just is and we don't and i think that's not just true of religion but politics and and any any beliefs that we have that we maybe don't look at them and so the questioning the street epistemology like you said actually subtly getting someone to question it might be the first time they've ever thought oh why do i believe that right absolutely and i think a big one in the united states is I mean, the, the Constitution in the United States is sacred, but getting people to even question that some parts, I mean, of course, I think the Constitution, the American Constitution in general is a fantastic document with, with great um, moral guidelines, but there are some parts of it that, that could be questioned and just getting people to question the sacred document. I mean, it's, it's just like getting people to question the Bible. Yeah, there's, there's, I was watching actually a Jim Jeffries comedy a bit the other day I showed it to my parents about gun control and he's Australian and um he talks about the constitution and that people are like you can't change the second amendment it's like well it's an amendment so actually <laughs> that's the whole point that and and with your constitution and I think you know oh, we've got one I'm pretty sure but it's not so kind of ugh, sacred but I think it's it's a living document you know the fact that there have been amendments that things have changed shows that you can question it and you can adapt over time but yeah i think there are some things that just no yeah it's interesting I, i'm not sure that any country has got the same relationship with their constitution as america i don't know yeah i'm i'm not sure it's people people love it here <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's yeah it's interesting i i find u.s culture very interesting because i think with UK, the UK and the US, sometimes we're like, oh, we're so similar. And then sometimes you're like, you see the differences in the culture. And it can be surprising because you kind of think, oh, you know, we speak the same language. Sometimes we say things differently and spell them differently, but mostly. But actually, there's a lot of differences and I find it really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I'm not sure if you want to talk about, talk about it now or later on. I'm interested in, in uh, psychology education in the UK because that's one of the things that I've been exploring, uh, graduate programs mm. in the UK and, and what those are like. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about that. Yeah, the UK's um, psychology is, I think, possibly the most popular subject at university now. It's certainly one of the most popular at A-level. So, kind of uh, end of high school level and it's it's a massively popular subject um for young people in this country and yeah there's lots of psychology programs um so why why does the uk kind of appeal to you our kind of psychology education um mostly for practical i mean i've and i'd love to go i think it's in terms of countries that i would want to live in for at least a few years it's at the top of the list just because of the language and i've done some reading and i found that the the PhD programs are three years, whereas in the US, they're like five to five plus years. Are you, so is, are you thinking a research PhD or a kind of a psychologist training doctorate? Because there's like a few different types because I've been researching at the moment as well. There's a few. Yeah, I think yeah. I think if I were to go to the UK, it would, it would be for a research degree just because I think if 
if I do a psychologist training program, it'd be best to stay in the US because I want to I want to work here eventually. Yeah, that probably makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so our PhDs are um, yeah between three and six years, so three years full time, six years part time, and you can do mixed length. But um, have you looked at particular universities or just kind of general UK? Just kind of general. I mean, at the at the autism lab, one of the one of the senior researchers did her PhD at at Cambridge. So I was talking to her a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. And it seems based on what she said is the coursework is, is very limited if, if there's any coursework at all and you, and you kind of just dive into the research. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Well, yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. And uh, yeah, Thank I you. think the UK education system um, is great. We have some fantastic universities and I feel like I've been to several now because I've just kind of done bits all, <laughs> all over the place. Um, so yeah, so um, I have some set questions I ask everyone that comes on and I'd love to hear your thoughts on these. So the first one is what brings you joy in your life? Honestly, just, I think just being around people that I love and having experiences. I really love experiences, even if they're uncomfortable or, or maybe even a little bit dangerous. Like for example, I, I, I love rock climbing. I haven't been doing it so much uh, recently just because it's honestly, it's, it's a little expensive um, and I just completed my university degree. So I might put that off for, for a while. Um, but yeah, just having these experiences where um maybe you get into some sort of situation that was funny or uncomfortable and then being able to laugh at that later. I, I love those or lots of stuff boosts my mood, even like little things like coffee and food. I love food. I love, I love thinking about food and, and planning these big meals with a bunch of different bunch of courses. Uh, yeah. And um, let's see, going to nature is incredible for me. Just, like backpacking when you can get out there and then turn off your cell phone and and just spend a few days, you know, hiking around the mountains. It's incredible for me. Mm. And I suppose you've got a lot of amazing scenery kind of uh, where you are, but it's always funny when you say mountains, because the UK, we've got essentially a couple of big hills. That's it. They're not really (laughs) mountains. I remember going to South America and they were like mountains and it was like, there's no way we could have, prepared for the kind of the, the drop in altitude and acclimatize in the UK because we just <laughs> nothing is tall enough um for it but it's amazing to have have all that on your doorstep and I think with joy being able to have those little things like you mentioned is is great because you can't always go off for a couple of days backpacking in the mountains as nice as it is to do but if you can find joy in yeah planning a nice meal or coffee and coffee brings me a lot of joy <laughs> yeah yeah I think just trying to find joy in, in everyday life I mean lots of stuff are enjoyable even if you know at first glance they may not seem like it like like a long drive in traffic can be really nice if you find a great podcast to listen to or, or a new some new music to listen to um, or you call someone up that that yeah. you haven't talked to in a while yeah they're yeah. all my favorite things to do driving <laughs> yeah. awesome uh, so my next question is what makes life meaningful for you so I think I think probably a combination of feeling good. And when I say feeling good, I don't mean, you know, feeling happy or, or all the time, just, but just feeling good and making a, a positive contribution in the world. I think, you know, forming strong relationships with people is very nice. And I found that I found that when I feel the most uh, depressed or the most anxious is when I'm not grounded to something outside of myself. You know, for example, I found that, in the transition periods between 
you know, high school and university, or right now I've just completed my university degree and I'm kind of um, in between different uh, institutions can lead to a feeling of, you know, depression or some feelings of hopelessness. So for me, I think it's really important to stay connected to something greater. And, you know, like I said with your last question, going out into nature is a great way to do this for me just because, I mean, when you're standing at the top of a mountain, you just see everything and it's, it's an incredible feeling. Mm. It's amazing, isn't it? How sometimes having that and that real feeling of awe, um, we can feel really insignificant, but also really grounded and connected at the same time. There's something kind of interesting about that. It's like, oh, I'm so small, but also, oh, this is lovely. And it's, um, yeah, very powerful experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I found that while stargazing as well. I I live uh, close to Joshua Tree National Park in California, which has incredible stargazing. I mean, you just lay on the ground at night and and you can see so much. You can spend hours out there. Amazing. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, my next question, the kind of overarching uh, topic on the podcast is mental well-being. So I have two questions for you around this. So the first is what does mental wellness mean to you? So mental wellness, I'm trying not to sound too much like a psychology textbook now, but that's really the, the framework with, with which I understand mental wellness. But I think it's a, a, it has to do with accurately uh, perceiving and dealing with different stressors that arise in daily life, um, sort of having a feeling, like I mentioned in the last question, uh, this sense of belonging and contributing to something greater. I mean, almost having this feeling of self-transcendence from time to time where you're not just always in your head, just like, oh, what do I need to do now? And it's like, I'm, I'm so stressed about what's going on in my life, but sort of taking a step back. Um, and it's almost like when you're driving and you're really focused on the road and then you look up and there's a beautiful sunset. It's sort of that feeling. Um, and I think also just mental wellness for me has to do a lot with accurately evaluating my own abilities and strengths and weaknesses and direction in life and sort of accurately interacting with the world. Awesome. And so then my follow-up is then, and I, and I think some of this you maybe already hinted at in, in previous answers as well, is how you look after your own mental well-being. Yeah, I, I try to look at it, try to look after it in a lot of different ways. And I think, of course, studying psychology is, is, a, is a great tool um, just to know about what options there are out there to, to help with the mental well-being. But I think one of the things that I always try to do is is to remind myself that I'll never reach this point of mental well-being and be like, okay, I'm here. You know, I, I just think mental health is always changing and it's, you know, dependent on the environment that you're in. And of course, the environment that you're in is always changing. So um, just reminding myself that that mental health will change and sort of accept those changes. And maybe if I'm feeling depressed one day, just reminding myself like, okay, this will pass. But at the same time, if I'm feeling great another day, just thinking, okay, this isn't going to last forever and I need to be prepared for that. And, you know, in addition to these sort of uh, reminders, I, I like to exercise, um, which has been a little bit tricky because the gyms have been closed recently. Um, but I like to meditate. I've had a, a meditation practice for about maybe two or three years now, um, mo- more consistent for the past year. And I like to journal as well. Jur- I, I journal every day. It's, it's incredible. 
Yeah, there's some great, um, great suggestions there for, for other people. And there's a tip question coming up in a minute. But some of those things that you mentioned, things that come up quite often that exercise and journaling and meditating, and there's a reason that lots of people find benefits to them. And uh, my gym has just recently reopened, which has been great <laughs> to get back into a bit of structure. And, and I find it so good for my for my mental health. So yeah, I'm jealous. I'd love to go to the gym right now. But <laughs> Yeah, it's it's different, but yeah, it's it's been good. So, um, my next question, sometimes a bit of a challenge, but not everyone's a psych student, so or graduate. Uh, so, uh, can you describe your mindset? Are you asking more like the like the framework or like the attitudes that I have when I'm just going through life? It's a very open question for you to interpret. How you like. Okay. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I'm in my early 20s, so I think my mindset right now is just to learn as much as possible and to be open to the fact that I'm going to make mistakes. It's like, and sort of really accepting that. And I mean, for me, and I'm, I'm sure lots of other people, if not everyone else, people sort of, as they get older, they look back on their past decisions and choices and feel embarrassed. And that's, that's my hope for the future. I hope that I'm feeling embarrassed or ashamed of things that I'm doing today because it will mean that I've been making some progress. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I'm trying not to take things so seriously. I'm trying to enjoy life. And I think I think if I had to sum it up in one word, just my mindset is, is just flexibility. That's what I'm most interested in at the moment and what I'm trying to be. Awesome. Thanks. For that. And I, I think that's a great approach to have that um, because I think making mistakes is something that so many of us can really be resistant to and and I think having that ability to be flexible and to kind of learn from it uh, is yeah a great attitude to have because I think if you are so afraid of making mistakes that you're sort of holding yourself back from what you really want to do then that's not really making the most out of life and if you're kind of going going for it and you're looking forward to looking back on the embarrassment I think that's a great way of kind of flipping it and yeah and I think with mistakes I sort of take I was reading Pema Chodron's book, How to Meditate. And there's a chapter or maybe a few chapters in that book where she discusses the, the idea. It's called the no big deal approach um, just for meditation in particular. If you get distracted or you find that your mind has wandered off somewhere else and you're not focusing on the breath or, or whatever object of meditation uh, you're, you're focusing on for that session, you just say, hey, no big deal. This is no problem. And I, I try to uh, I try to use that mindset in, in in real life, just so everything really isn't a big deal, because I mean, obviously, there are some things that are a big deal, but I want to save my energy for when something's serious and not, you know, if I'm stuck in traffic, hey, no big deal. Yeah, it's amazing how many people get so angry about traffic. And yeah, I, I've also got a no big deal attitude to traffic, just like, just put some good yeah. tunes on, phone someone, like you said earlier, and just no big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah or even laughing at myself. Sometimes, I mean, not so much anymore, but I remember I used to be sitting in traffic and, and thinking, oh man, why are all these people out? Like, then I think, oh wait, I'm here too. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where are they all going at this time of day? And, oh, um, yeah. So um, my next question. So everyone that comes on, I ask to leave us with between one and three tips of things that we can try in our life that are going to have a, a big impact. So you can do kind of general um, I don't know, you could do moral psychology related ones if you want, or just general, uh, yeah, one to three tips that you would recommend people uh, give a go. Sure. Yeah, I think 
I'll start with moral psychology one, that just because that's what we've been talking about today. But um, I'd say in terms of moral psychology, one thing that you can do is, is study some of the literature. I mean, there's a lot of great books out there, like uh, pop psychology books that you can read and, and really begin to understand how people make moral judgments. But in relation to that, I think it's really important to notice how you make your own moral judgments or decisions. You know, for me, for example, I noticed that I would be making a judgment about right or wrong that may not have been completely accurate or that this judgment may have been heavily influenced by my current emotions or the judgment was completely unrelated to the action itself. Like, for example, I used to take uh, a small bus to my classes when I was at uh, university and it would be early in the morning, you know, maybe seven and six or seven in the morning, I'd be sitting there, I'd be tired, I would have uh, an exam that day or a presentation, and maybe someone would bump into me. And I would automatically have this moral judgment, like, oh, this is a horrible person, like, they're just trying to ruin my day, uh, what's wrong with them. But then once I started noticing how I make these moral judgments, I, I realized, well, you know, the bus is moving, maybe they just bumped into me, maybe it's not their fault, maybe they have some sort of medical condition where their balance isn't the best. I don't know, maybe they have an ear infection <laughs> or something. But yeah, just I, I really try to notice how how I'm making or how I'm coming to conclusions about the rightness or the wrongness of other people and even myself and sort of adjusting for that. Awesome. Yeah, I think that that's a great one. And I guess that kind of ties back to what we were, were saying about the sort of belief thing and not just jumping to it kind of questioning our own beliefs or judgments and, and where they come from rather than just accepting them because these thoughts they pop into our head oh well they're rude but actually <laughs> there could be so many things going on um that explain whatever that behavior was so right absolutely and i think meditation goes hand in hand with this because once you start meditating you can almost it's almost like there's a screen in your head and you can see the thoughts like popping in um, and they just sort of appear. So yeah. So yeah, that's my first tip. I think my second tip would be to learn about cognitive behavioral therapy and try to apply some of the techniques in daily life. I mean, I think the idea of cognitive restructuring can be useful in every part of daily life, even if you're not working with, with a mental health professional. You know, anytime you want to identify a certain way or a certain pattern of thinking and restructure those thoughts to get a better outcome, you can use the techniques in cognitive behavioral therapy. Awesome. Thank you for those. And do you have a third or just, just those two? Um, you don't, no, no pressure. You don't have to. Do <laughs> oh, I think, I think I do have one. I think awesome. uh, I mentioned this earlier, but journaling is really powerful. Mm -hmm. If you haven't tried it before, I mean, it will improve your writing skills, which will help you be more art better articulate your thoughts. It will help you reflect on life experiences. It will serve as a record of your thoughts and feelings at a specific moment in time. And I mean, we all have memories, but like I'll, I'll be I'll be flipping through my old journals and I'll know exactly what I was feeling or exactly what I was thinking on a specific date. And it's it's just incredible just to, I mean, if not see how far you come, just to just to just to reminisce. Yeah, I, I definitely will uh, kind of echo what you said about journaling. I think it's a great way of tuning in uh, to ourselves and kind of, yeah, figuring out more about ourselves. And I, I quite like, sometimes I'll do kind of free write journaling and sometimes I'll have like a prompt question. Yeah, yeah, quite like a mix. I don't know, do you tend to do just like free writing journaling? Yeah, yeah, sometimes I use prompts. 
usually, well, I keep a meditation journal and also just like a, a general journal. In my meditation journal, I'll use prompts mm-hmm. from this from this Buddhism class that I took and the professor had us meditating every day and writing about our experiences with very specific questions, like asking to describe the feelings or, or, or what was happening in our visual field as our eyes were closed. Um, so I'll use those sorts of things and I'll try to connect the meditation experience to whatever I'm reading at the time. Awesome. So I do both. Awesome. And then my, my final question is uh, where people can connect with you online. I don't know if you're, uh, you know, on social media, if you're open to connecting with people, but if you are, where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't use social media that often. I just recently got on Twitter, so you can find me on there. I have I have a small blog on the website Medium. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just write about topics in psychology that I think are interesting. A lot of the things that we talked about today, actually, I've, I've written about in that blog. You can find me on LinkedIn, and I also have a, a personal website where you can find sort of links to all of my profiles and, and my work. Awesome. And I will absolutely put links in the show notes so that people can find you easily from there as well. Thank you so much, Michael. I've, yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, chatting with you and um, yeah, psychology. I love psychology. I find it so fascinating. So I'm sure we could have stayed for hours talking about it in depth, but thank you so much for coming in and sharing your research experience with us. And I yeah, wish you luck with wherever, wherever it takes you next. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. I, I really enjoyed talking about on psychology with you as well. So thanks again to Michael for joining us and, and for sharing his experience. And as I said, I wish when I did my undergrad that <laughs> that I knew uh, or someone had said to me, you know, take those opportunities, reach out, get involved in, in research because I, I just think, well you know, everything I've done, my my decisions, my choices have led me to where I am now. And that's a good place. But I think also it, um, it would have been great to have done it then. So yeah, any any students, any young people listening to this, I think that's definitely some advice to take on board. Uh, just a note on neurodiversity. And we talked, we talked about neurodiversity, we talked about the autistic spectrum. Uh, and neurodiversity, I think is a topic feels quite personal to me as well I uh, and this is something maybe that we'll come back to I identify as neurodiverse um so I I guess what my point is that we're talking about autism as a spectrum in a kind of abstract rather than specific individuals and and hopefully that came across as being curious about it not judgmental in any way or, or something about that but um I think it's a topic that at some point we will kind of come back around to and and talk about. And I think with beliefs, as I said at the beginning, I think there's real value in examining our beliefs because sometimes we pick them up, we hold them, we don't really look at them and and examine them and, and kind of question them because that can be really difficult to do. And for me personally, one of my values is curiosity. So I always want to um seek to understand whether that is myself and increasing my self-awareness but also other people and and so approaching beliefs from that stance of trying to understand where people are coming from and kind of what's led them to hold those beliefs is something that's important to me and I know we were talking about beliefs and discussions and kind of changing people's beliefs and I don't necessarily think that's the kind of default that we should always be going with in with you know we can have very different 
we've talked a lot about political and religious beliefs and personally for me it's it's about understanding where people are coming from not in a kind of wanting to convert them to to see things my own way um but that's kind of just how I live my life that's um being curious and, and not knowing where people are coming from where what their experiences have been and all of that kind of stuff that can shape the beliefs that we hold so I try to be curious uh, with the guests that we have on with people that I talk to in my my own life uh, and I think with these beliefs you know we we talked about as I said like politics and religion and these big beliefs that we can hold really strongly but in my my coaching work limiting beliefs is something that comes up a lot and those beliefs that we hold about ourselves that sometimes can be really positive but often the ones that can kind of trip us up are those limiting beliefs where we we've maybe heard something we've um, had an experience we something has happened uh, often that we're not necessarily consciously aware of that has given us some kind of belief about ourselves and about what is possible for us or what is expected of us and they can really limit what what we can achieve and 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 how our life is and, and that's kind of why we call them limiting beliefs and so I think however you reacted to this conversation it might be that you are very firmly in the I know things <laughs> it's not just a belief um, you might have been quite resistant to some of the conversation that is absolutely fine but I think with some of the beliefs that we have about ourselves I I think it can be really beneficial to look at them and to to examine them to question whether they are justified true beliefs so where did they come from and sometimes you might you might have a belief about yourself you might know exactly where it came from and you might want to let go of that belief but just because you know those things doesn't mean that it's easy to let them go and maybe there is something about that belief that is in some way serving you that is in some way protecting you or keeping you safe or, or something like that and for me personally my when I think about my my journey from really hating myself to being in a better place in myself and kind of what that looked like and the first step for me was really about self-awareness it was really about tuning into myself and getting to know myself again and questioning some of these beliefs that I had about myself the way I viewed myself and and taking that curiosity towards myself and learning to listen to myself and, and trust myself again and after that, it's, it was then a lot about self-compassion and kind of learning to like <laughs> like myself again and, uh, and, and all of that. And um, but I think that first step is that self-awareness piece. It is being able to tune into our thoughts, our feelings, what we're feeling in our body, to, uh, to be present with ourselves and to be mindful. And, and I think it's something that I have... Um, personally experienced the benefit of that that I support clients with that and with the mindfulness that is something that is becoming increasingly important in my life um so I guess in a very long winded way <laughs> I'm, I'm just encouraging you to, to maybe look at, at some of your beliefs to spend a bit of time reflecting on what are those things that you believe to be true about yourself and and really looking at them you know what are they where did they come from how maybe are they holding you back but 
also how are they maybe serving you um because sometimes we can be thinking and and i'll give you an example rather than dealing in the abstract that for a long time i have well i've got quite a few <laughs> limiting beliefs one had been about not being good enough and uh, i recorded a um a video yesterday with my friend natalie christina who's been on the show before which will be on her youtube it's for her coffee time series so i'll let you know about that when it comes out but we're talking about bullying and the impact of that and i can really see these clear instances where i felt not good enough where i felt left out and excluded and and feel the impact of that and so obviously that then holds me back because i don't necessarily put myself forward for things or express how i feel because there's that fear of how people will react and whether i will be seen as good enough so that's the kind of negative side. But if I think about how it served me, this belief, that fear, that it, it's about safety a lot. It's about that, I guess, that memory of that experience and that actually that was a difficult thing to experience. And so having this belief and then putting the brakes on some of the things I want actually, in a way, kind of keeps me safe. It means I'm not failing. I, you know, there's there's something that I'm getting from it and it's it's hard to let go of some of these beliefs because they can be quite grounding in some way there's something that we can hold on to there's something that kind of can shape how we view ourselves and, and the world and letting go of those no matter how negative they are how how much they might be holding us back letting go of those is really really scary and destabilizing because if that has made up kind of how you see everything what happens when you let it go you can kind of be quite adrift and so thinking about and this is something that quite often if you're looking at values or beliefs with with a coach whether that's with your like self-coaching or with a coach it's, it's starting to think about kind of reframing some of those and kind of replacing them and this idea of maybe adding something rather than just taking it away because if you are you're kind of balancing on on all of those beliefs and all of that stuff and someone just yanks it out from under you <laughs> so yeah um it can all kind of come crashing down and, and feel really like a, a loss of identity or a kind of a, a crisis in that way so adding things on and, and kind of shifting, putting new, I don't know where I'm going with this analogy, like chairs or whatever that you're, <laughs> you're balancing on before you let go of those ones that aren't serving you. Um, so I think this is this is something that's really been on my mind uh, from this conversation, but also with coaching that I've been doing this week. And there's something that maybe I will talk about a little bit more on the show. Uh, if, if you're interested in hearing about my kind of thoughts or kind of things that are coming up for, for my clients and I guess also this is a time uh, to to say that if you are interested in working with me as a client, I do have some spaces for coaching clients. And it's all about that. For me, there, there are so many different types of coaches. There are so many different approaches and styles. And, um, and I do believe that a, a good coach stays with you and what you want to bring to that session. But that being said, not every coach is, is going to work for everyone because we're all individuals and have our preferred ways of, of working um, and being supported. But for me as a coach, I'm all around that, that idea of mental well-being, that idea of how you view yourself, how you feel about yourself, self-worth, 
confidence, self-awareness, imposter syndrome, neurodiversity, all those kind of things. So if that kind of sounds like you (laughs) and that's something that you're like, I'm trying to figure out all of this. um, I'm someone who pretty much like I am on the show, kind of calm, consistent, encouraging, supportive uh, about creating that safe space to really explore what is going on for you. If that sounds up your street and you've been looking for a coach for some support and all this kind of stuff, then check out my website, www.psykhe.co.uk. I'm going to be updating about the um, the coaching and the packages I have. At the moment, it's quite brief, but you can reach out and contact me from there if you're interested in working with me. So as I've been kind of waffling a little bit about coaching, I thought I'd uh, share that. Um, I'm realizing that I say waffling quite a lot because my friend Nate, who I mentioned before, when I say waffling, I often get a message when he's listening to an episode with a smiley face sort of saying waffling, whether it's a British saying or just one of my own, I don't know. But I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed geeking out. Um, we're kind of getting back into a bit more applied stuff on Wednesday when we're joined by Kevin and we're diving into a unique way of looking at fight flight freeze and stress response so really exciting really looking forward to sharing that with you and if you've enjoyed this episode please do rate review and share it it really means a lot and it helps us to to reach more people who kind of hear the message that we've got going on here and and can be part of the psyche community and I really want to um, I'm recording this on Valentine's Day actually so want to say that I love you and I appreciate you for being here for listening for supporting the show and I know that you'll be listening to this after Valentine's Day, but um, I really hope that you love and appreciate yourself and that you're looking after yourself. We've we've dived into self-care quite a bit recently and, and I think it really is an act of self-compassion and self-love to, to nurture ourselves in that way and look after ourselves. And I think it does have such a profound impact on our well-being, on how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about our lives, how we can show up for ourselves, for the people in our lives and for our lives. So I love and appreciate you and I hope that you love and appreciate yourself as well. Take care for now and I'll be back on Wednesday. Bye. Bye.